Last week we started on the chapter of good works, 16 of the London Baptist Confession. And we got through the first two paragraphs and we have five to go, so we're going to be blitzing through this here. Uh, But just a quick review, we did talk about good works and we kind of discussed why this chapter was needed, that there was a difference between the Catholic view of justification and the Protestant view of justification. And so what happened is why this chapter was so important. We also defined who defines good works, that God is the one that ultimately says what a good work is. And then in paragraph two, we went through the importance or the benefits of good works, where it's, it's, a, it's the fruit of a living faith. It's a way to express thankfulness, a way to strengthen our assurance, builds up our brothers and sisters, it adorns the profession of the gospel, stops the mouths of opponents, and it ultimately glorifies God. So now we are on to paragraph three. And there we are. So paragraph three. I'll just read it here and we'll just continue on here. Their ability to do good work, so there that being, Their ability to do good works does not arise at all from themselves, but entirely the Spirit of Christ. To enable them to do good works, they need, in addition to the graces they've already received, actual influence of the Spirit to work in them, and to will and to do His good pleasure. Yet this is no reason for them to grow negligent, as if they are not required to perform anything without a special motion of the Spirit. Instead, they should be diligent to stir up the grace of God that is. So, two essential truths that we find in paragraph three. The ability to do good works is caused by the influence of the Holy Spirit who indwells believers. So, it's rooted in the Holy Spirit being in us. That's what causes us. And number two, while the working of the Holy Spirit in us is the ultimate cause of good works... At the same time, our working requires deliberate effort. So, start with point number one, this, that, that it's the actual Holy Spirit that influences. Point number one is best reflected in John 15. So, if, if everyone wants to turn there, this is one of the I am passages of Scripture. And this is where Jesus talks about him being the true vine. So in John 15, starting in the very first verse, I'm just going to read probably the first five or six verses. John says, sorry, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire. This is a wonderful statement showing our true need of Christ in all areas of our life. It's showing how important our union with him is. We need his spirit in regeneration to actually bring us to faith, but we also need an ongoing reliance and presence from 
not only in just our good works, but through our entire Christian walk. We are not simply to live on the grace received at our Rather, the point is that we are in constant of grace. We are daily and continually in need of the ongoing influence of the Holy Spirit. For without the Holy Spirit's working in us, we will not be able to will or to do works that are in any true or real measure good works. This reminds us how important it is that we are regularly praying for the help of the Spirit in our efforts to do works. 2 Corinthians 3.5 says this, Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. We always have to remember that in our walk, that no matter what we're doing, and it, it seems, sometimes it can, it, it can seem almost silly to some people. I've, I've taken time, I know even just in preparing this lesson, I'll sit down to start studying and reading, and I'll just say a quick prayer, and I say, God, like, I need you to help me in this. I try and do this in my own strength. It's worthless. It's not going to bear any good fruit. I need you to open my eyes to your scriptures. I need you to open up my eyes so that I can see this and teach it right. So it's, it's something to always remember in all things that we do, not even just our good works, but in all areas of life, to constantly be in prayer for God to con- or for the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and to work out things and to, to do the small little works, even making a meal for somebody in our church. That's a very big thing we do. Praying to God and saying, God, please help me in this. May this, may this honor you and may this help this person. It's, it's, it's a constant need we have. So the confession continues on with the statement, yet this is no reason for them to grow negligent as if they were not required to perform any duty without a special motion of the Spirit. So this is, a really, this is really important. We can read all the preceding statements and become dejected. Why should I do any good works at all if I cannot do anything apart from, Christ, uh, apart from Christ? What's the point of me physically trying to do anything? We need Christ all the time. And what's, what's the point of me even doing good works if I need God? I must need a special prodding from the Spirit to do anything. And there are groups that act in this way. I haven't researched too much into it. Uh, I was listening to one Sunday school lesson where... Uh, the teacher mentioned Quakers, that this was something that they would do, that they had this idea that they would not do anything unless they had a special prodding from the Holy Spirit. And you can see that sometimes where even just the littlest thing, but I'm not doing it unless I have that special prodding from the Holy Spirit. And they have this idea that good works are, in a, like, are something that we drum up, that it's something that we do. But that's, that's not what we're seeing here. There are, uh, there are people that say, unless I have a special prodding of the Holy Spirit, I do not have to do anything. Or they may even go so far to say, unless it is some special, supernatural, miraculous thing that happens, it's not actually a good work in the sense that it's not God behind this work. Because it wasn't something incredible and supernatural. It's just a minor, like, I gave a meal to somebody. I, you know, uh, I, took a, I, I gave some food to the homeless, or I went and volunteered at the soup kitchen. They would say, well, that's not really like an act of God in you. That's just you being a good person. And unbelievers can do those things too, which we'll touch on in the last paragraph. But there's people that think this way. So a confession is saying, no, any of that prodding to do those things, that is the Holy Spirit in you. And that we can't just grow negligent. It, being our heart or our mind, 
Well, reason, since I'm unable to do good works without the Spirit, I am at liberty to wait for the moving of the Spirit before I attempt to perform any good work. What is wrong with this seemingly logical deduction? It equates the influence of the Spirit with certain emotional sensations and feelings. Such an equation the Bible nowhere supports, and in actually, in fact, refutes. Romans 8.14, John 3.8, and Philippians 2.12-13. This deduction makes the motions of the Spirit rule of our duty. The rule of our duty is, however, the perceptive. And I think this, this line of thinking is actually spreading across North America more and more. Uh, I know for myself growing up in the 90s, early 2000s, one of the biggest pushes in the Christian faith was your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It was always about you and your personal, it was your personal devotion, your personal prayer time, and it kind of isolated everybody, and everyone be, and became very individualistic. Instead of looking at the body and looking at the bride of Christ together, or, and what happened is you started to see people more and more not talking to others about things that they felt, or even talking to their pastors for influence, that they started looking inwardly and saying, Unless I have that special feeling, because I have a personal relationship with Jesus, unless I get that special prodding, no, I'm not going to do these things. And I think that's what kind of happened. It's, we're seeing the outworking of that today. Um, uh, for in, like, so, for instance, in early North American history, with revivalism played such a huge part in this. It over-spiritualized everything. Caring for the widows or orphans, and even feeding the hungry or clothing the naked, no longer became what we would define as a good work, as something that God tells us to do or instructs us to do. That just, that just became something that, he, that any good person could do. It wasn't actually the Holy Spirit working in us or having that uh, idea of a good work. The real good works of the Holy Spirit, now people are saying it's, you know, supernatural experience. It's making legs grow. It's healing people. It's doing all these things. That's what they would say is, no, that's a, that's a godly good work. But, you know, going and, you know, taking a meal to a widow or someone that just had a baby, that's nothing. But, that, but that's not what we're saying here. We're saying that, no, those are good works that, the, that God has instructed us to do, and it's the Holy Spirit working in us to do those things. So there's, as we discussed in the previous paragraph, remember, there's three major parts to remember. Conversion, good works, and glory. And we need the Holy Spirit, all of them, the entire step of the way. You need the Holy Spirit. This is why we should not be negligent. Instead, we should be diligent to stir up the grace within us. Philippians 3, 12 through 13, this. Therefore, my beloved, uh, sorry, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now this, well this scripture, sometimes people will look at this and they'll say it's almost, a, it's almost a way of looking at it like, am I saved? I need to work out my salvation. Am I saved? But there's a couple things you have to look at first. Paul refers to the people he's writing this to as my beloved. So these are believers. He's not questioning their salvation. He's calling them believers. He's calling them brothers of faith. Negatively, he is not implying that these people aren't converted. He is, he is not implying that they were to earn their salvation by their work. 
positively, he is telling them to work out, not work for the salvation they already have. And I would say this is that actual, the same message that James is actually saying. So remember last week I said, James has this, if you, if you read it just really quickly, it can almost seem like, oh, I have to work to earn my salvation. But he's not, it's not working, it's not working for, it's working out your salvation. So that, that's the big difference. He is speaking regarding the working out of their new Christian life in a life of gospel holiness with increasing conformity to Christ. He is speaking about living a life of doing good works by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we are commanded in the Word of God. The individual Christian is responsible for making progress in the Christian life and to be active in pursuing these things. So we should have a desire that that, that God should be working in our heart to do these things. We should have an idea that, and it's not to earn favor, it's not to earn merits, it's not to earn brownie points, it's something that stirs up within us that makes us go, we want to glory, glorify and honor God. So if you are a Christian, then God is always working in you the very thing Paul commanded us to do. He does not say if we believe enough, God is working in us. Or if we only let him, God is working in us. There is no condition here. He simply states it as a matter of fact and as a promise to be trusted. If we are true believers, then God by the Holy Spirit, is working in us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So that moves us past paragraph three. So like I said, we're, we have to get through five paragraphs today, so we got to blitz through this. So uh, paragraph four now. Those who attain the greatest heights of obedience possible in this life are far from being able to merit reward by going beyond duty or to do more than God requires. Instead, they fall short of much that is their duty to do. Does anyone have the confession pulled up on their phone or anything? Yeah, so if you look, so the, the link I sent was this one here. So Marjorie, you said you have it pulled up? Or, oh, you have it there? Oh, perfect. So is, is it an older version? Okay, so I'm going to read this. So this is probably the version that Marjorie has. Because if you actually look at the paragraph here, there's a little subnote. It's very important. Uh, so the, the older version of the confession says this. They who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to super arrogate and to do more than God requires as they fall short of much which in duty they are bound to do. So there's that word super arrogate. I know that's not very... I don't think anyone's used that this past week in their vocabulary. So, um, And even in this modern version, they actually have a subnote that says... and puts that word in there. So this is another reason, this is another thing that is purposely put in here to combat Roman Catholic doctrine. So super arrogate, what does that mean? Uh, The word purposely chosen is once again purposely chosen. R.C. Sproul writes this, according to Roman Catholic teaching, there have been a few saints who have lived lives of such extraordinary righteousness that they've accumulated more merit than they needed in order to gain direct entrance into heaven. Their excess merit was then deposited into the treasury of merit, where it is available to others. So this is called the doctrine of supererogation in Roman Catholic doctrine. Anyone at all even? Okay, fair enough. Uh, But what, what you'll be able to know is from this doctrine, this is where... 
this was where indulgences was coming from. Okay, so remember in Martin Luther's time when they would have indulgences, people would pay certain amounts of money and their relatives were able to knock off time in purgatory. This is where this doctrine actually comes into play. So basically what that doctrine says is because they believe in their good works are meritorious. They believe that there's some people that live such great lives that that extra goodness that they did gets put into some magical box, I guess, but it's put somewhere and that people can gain that merit and put it onto other people. So that's what the treasury of merit basically is. And this is what was happening with the indulgences as people were paying money to access that treasury and then that treasury, they would take that merit and put it on their dead relatives so that they wouldn't spend as much time in purgatory. So that's, what, that's why they, they purposely make sure to, to mention that word super arrogate is because it is to directly combat that idea. So obviously we don't believe works have merit. That's why it's, it, it just doesn't work. But works of super arrogation are impossible because no hu- mere human being has done all that God requires perfectly, much less more than God requires. Even if we did all that God requires in his law personally, perpetually, and perfectly, inwardly, pardon me, and outwardly all the time without fail, which we don't, we have only done what God requires, not more than what God requires. So this is, this is our understanding is even if we were to live that perfect life, if we were to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength for every second of every day and, and absolutely do it all 100% perfectly our entire lives, that's just what God requires. We haven't gone above duty for that. We, that, that that's, it's impossible to go beyond what God requires of us. We can only get to that point where we come to a point of neutrality. We, we don't... We can't do more. So that's why we would say that this, this idea of super arrogation is false. The, the idea with the treasury merit is all false. But that's what we would say is that even if somehow a person was able to do everything, they're just, they themselves are, the, the wording would be used as an unprofitable servant. We've, we've done our job, we've done our task, but we haven't profited anything. So that's a very quick Summary of paragraph four. Paragraph five, we cannot, and this is going to talk about that, that meritorious aspect, so they, they kind of blend together, these last couple paragraphs. So paragraph five says, We cannot, even by our best works, merit pardon of sin or eternal life from God's hand due to the huge disproportion between our works and the glory to come and the infinite distance between us and God. By these works, we can neither benefit God nor satisfy him for the debt of our former sins. When we have done all we can, we have only done our duty and are unprofitable servants. Since our good works are good, they must proceed from his spirit. And since they are performed by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot withstand the severity of God's punishment. So, paragraph 5 we can break down into four reasons why our good works aren't meritorious. So this is, once again, Roman Catholics would highly disagree with this. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, would highly disagree with this idea of good works. They would say, no, my, my good works are earning favor. They're doing something. No, I, we would say, no, they're not. So the first reason why our works are not, they don't gather merit, 
is disproportionate to the reward. So there is no equivalency between what God requires and what he gives in return. What I mean by this is this would be like if you were selling your house today and somebody came with a sack of marbles to buy it. That is what our good work, it, it's, that, that it's disproportionate to the reward. No, like if I came and offered you that for your house, you would, no, I'm not, I'm not giving you my house for this. That's what we mean by it is that, yes, we have these good works, we're bringing them to God, but that's because of God's holiness, because of his character, that is what we are basically offering, that it's just, it's disproportionate to that. It's inconsequential to God is reason number two. So they cannot profit God, or they cannot satisfy for sin. So if we remember God is self-sufficient, he doesn't need anything. He doesn't, it's not like he's waiting on our good works to build him up or make him feel good. He is self-sufficient. So he does not need anything, and we are not adding joy to him because of our good works. He does not benefit in any way to our good works. And even if we, like I said, even if we absolutely did everything that he asked of us, it's not profitable for him. It just, it's, we have just done everything that he has commanded. Number three, why our good works cannot, are not meritorious, is it's originated by the Spirit of God. So it's not actually, it's, it's God actually bringing us and, and it's his Spirit that originates it in us. It's not actually us, so it's kind of like God is giving us the power to do these. So the way you think of it is, if good works are themselves the gifts of free and sovereign grace, there is certainly no merit to them before God. Whatever real and actual good is in our works is only the result of his spirit enabling us to do that. So even what li- the, the, the good that we do have in our good works, it's God has granted us to do that. So it's, it's basically he is giving us that power to do it. So we're basically returning it to him. So it's not, like I said, it's not profitable for him. And lastly, it's mixed with sin, as it says in the paragraph five. Our best works are always mixed with sin and imperfections. Our motives are never entirely pure. Thus, our highest and best works could never meet God's acceptance or approval apart, uh, sorry, uh, apart from the mediation of Christ. As the scripture says, all our righteousness are like filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. This is especially evident when our works are held up to the perfect standard of God's law. So, as we, as we say, they're, they're always mixed with sin. There's always some form of imperfection for it. And I'll kind of explain this a little bit more in uh, the next par- or in paragraphs, the next paragraph. But after going through paragraphs four and five, you might feel dejected. You might feel discouraged. Can we, as believing children, do nothing that pleases him? That, that, that's, you kind of read that, and that's what it feels like. It's like, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I want to do good works. I want to do this. But even if I bring that to him, it, it, it's, it's tainted with sin. It's all these things. It, it, can, it can kind of leave you discouraged. But our best works are still tainted with sin. But it sounds bleak. It sounds really discouraging. But then we get to paragraph 6. And paragraph 6 says this. Nevertheless... Believers are accepted through Christ, and thus their good works are also accepted in him. This acceptance does not mean our good works are completely blameless and irreproachable in God's sight. 
Instead, God views them through his son, and he is so pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, even though it is accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. So the key words in paragraph six are in Christ, in him, in his son. So even when I talked about sanctification, I talked about our union with Christ and how important that is. It's the same thing here. You have to be united with Christ for these good works that you bring to God. Uh, Because you have put your faith in Christ, you are now united to him. Uh, God sees our good works through the lens of his son. And my hope this, son, hope this, this Sunday school doesn't leave you despondent thinking, wow, I thought I was actually doing good, but apparently God looks at me and is like, wow, you're bringing me these filthy... No, he is looking at them through the lens of his son. My hope is that you see your need for Christ in this. Is that you don't just try and drum up more good works and be better and do... It shows our need for Christ. It shows that need that we need to come to him more and more and let him transform our heart. It's not a matter of us, like I I said last week, we're not trying to duct tape fruit to a tree here and just say, there, it's alive. See, it's bearing fruit. No, we we have to water and nurture the root to produce fruit. So, uh, this is, my hope is that it elevates your love for him and what he has accomplished and I hope it gives you a better understanding of it, of being united to him. And to kind of explain this example, I was listening to a, a pastor named Brian Borgman, and he had this in his Sunday school lesson, and he used this analogy, and I think it's wonderful. So he said, think of it this way. I mean, a lot of us have kids. I, I have a son. So say my son comes to me, and he says, Dad, I really want to do something good for you. I want to help you out. I want to mow the lawn. My son's six. We, we have a pretty big yard, and I go... Okay, so he's like, I want to help. I want to mow the lawn. So he goes up and he gets to the lawnmower and he starts trying to, to pull start it. And he's just too weak. Like he's barely able to pull the rip cord out and just it's not working. So I come up behind him. I put my hand on his and we rip the cord together and the lawnmower starts up. And then he's trying to push it and he's trying it and it's just not moving and nothing's working. And I, go, and I come up behind him and I put my hands on him and I bring the bar down and we start pushing the lawnmower together. And he's going, wow, like I'm mowing the lawn for dad. But I'm, I'm there behind him. He doesn't know. And so because he's in front of me, we're trying to mow the lawn and we're trying to do turns and it's jagged. It's, it's not good. There's spots missing. We go around the yard a couple times and there's just, it, it looks like a disaster. But he finishes up and he says, dad, I mowed the lawn for you. And I reach into my pocket, give him $5 and I say, thanks, buddy. That's the way God looks at our good works. He looks at them through the lens of his son. As imperfect as the job is, even though it's tainted with sin, even though it's not properly done, He looks at it lovingly as a father, and he rewards you for it, for even something that you don't bring perfectly. And I thought that was the most beautiful analogy to think of it. So when you are doing these good works, don't feel despondent that you're not doing enough, that you're not. Once again, it all focuses back to Christ. It's always, always rely on that and say, I'm doing this for God's glory and I know I'm united to Christ, and that's the way God is going to view it through the lens of. He's not going to look at it through the lens of Matthew. He's going to look at it through the lens of Christ. So, so this is how God views our works. They're not perfect. They're messy. Not the best. But he views them through his son, and he rewards you. Not because of it being a good job, but because of what is done in his son. 
So now the big question I think everyone thinks of when we talk about good works and we talk about all these things is, what about people that are not believers? We, we see people from different religions all doing good things. Uh, for instance, look at a disaster relief. A disaster comes in and people from all walks of life do good deeds. They help each other. I mean, me and Tiff live in Mormon community. You, you constantly see their missionaries out trying to do yard work, helping people, shoveling snow, do, trying to do good things. What about this? I mean, how many, how many of us have even experienced this where you talk to a, a non-believer and they say, well, I know a lot of non-believers that are even better, nicer than Christians. I, all Christians are always mean and gruff, but I mean people that don't believe in Christ and oh, they're, I, I deal with that quite a bit. <laughs> Is that, oh, the, the people that don't go to church, those are the real nice people, but the people that go to church, they're really mean. So I, I, I see that. So now what do we do with that? Well, like, how do we explain that? when we see non-believers doing good things, if, if they need to be united in the spirit, all these things. Well, let's go to paragraph seven. Works done by unregenerate people may in themselves be commanded by God and useful to themselves and others. Yet they do not come from a heart purified by faith and are not done in a right manner according to the word, nor with the right goal to glorify God. They themselves, or th sorry, therefore, they are sinful and cannot please God. They cannot qualify anyone to receive grace from God. And yet, their neglect is even more sinful and displeasing to God. So even though the Bible tells us that no one is good, no, not one, it also acknowledges that unregenerate people, in a different sense, will do good things. Romans 2.14 says, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. So the, the Bible acknowledges that we have unregenerate people obeying the law of God. We, we see unregenerate people not committing murder and, like I said, doing disaster relief, doing good things. Matthew 7.11 talks of earthly fathers being evil but knowing how to give good gifts to their children. So we have this reality that the Bible does tell us. And it's something we have to acknowledge. So even though man is fallen and dead in his trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1, he is capable of doing many things that we might call relatively good or civil good. So as I said, we have disaster relief, caring for widows and orphans, volunteering, being general and hospitable to others. There's all these good works. So wouldn't these count for something in the kingdom of God? Well, remember what we said, our good works aren't meritorious to God. That, so even if they are doing good things, it's not like God's like, oh, I'll give them a pass because they did this. And, you know, it's not, it's not like, oh, well, they did this good thing. They did this bad thing. They're going to cancel each other out. And that, that, that's not how it works. There's no amount of good deeds or good works that an unregenerate person can do to establish a right relationship with God. And in fact, these works are not pleasing to God. The Confessions tells us of four criteria that a truly good work must have. So number one, it must have the right matter. That means it must be a thing that God commands. So like I said, we, we've experienced this in the past five years where whether it was non-believers or professing believers trying to thrust upon things, people, trying to thrust things on people, say this is what it means to be a Christian, this is how you do a good work, but it's not commanded in Scripture. So number one, it has to be something that God commands. 
Second one, it must have the right root. It must proceed from a heart purified by faith. So that is why an unregenerate person cannot do a good work. Number three, it must have the right manner. God's work must be done in God's way. Think of it this way. We believe in the regulative principle of worship. We would say the regulative principle of good works is the same idea that how God wants that work done is how we are to do it. We can't say, well, God says to me to do it this way. I'm going to do it this way. And it's still, it's, it gets the end result, so it's still fine. It doesn't work that way. And the last criteria is it must have the right end. The glory of God must be its ultimate purpose. And a way to think of this is, so when it comes to what people do, it is not enough to look at actions or outward appearances. When, when God was choosing David in 1 Samuel 16, 7, he, he flat out said, everyone's going to look at the outward appearance of this boy, but God looks at the interior. Now, we've already kind of, last week, we discussed the right matter, so something that God commands. We've established that it's God who establishes what a good work is. So let's talk about the root. So a heart purified by faith is a believing, regenerated, repentant heart. It is a new heart given to a person by Christ, which results in a purity that otherwise does not and cannot exist. It is the heart of a person who is justified by faith in Christ alone and indwelt by his life-giving, sanctifying spirit. So it has to be a heart from a heart transformed by Christ. It's not just a, I feel like doing this because of X. That's why I said even a Mormon, they, they, they believe it's meritorious to do these good works and do all these things. So it's not in the right heart. It's not because they're, because they're not sanctified by Christ. Or purified. So the right manner. We also did kind of discuss this last week, talking that our good intentions do not make something good. We must understand that for something to be truly good, it is not only the actual work itself. It is the way we do it, and that way must be God's way. So even if you have, like I said, there's so many people that, oh, I did this because I have, I, I intended this to be good, and this is the intentions of my heart, and God's going to see that. No, we discussed that last week. That, that, that doesn't work that way. That to be truly good has to be what God says in his way. The right end. Why do these, why do these works at all? Many will do them for a myriad of selfish reasons, but the ultimate reason we must do something is to glorify God. We must have a heart ready to do these things and to bring honor and glory to God. That should be our ultimate desire. Not for expecting something in return or, you know, years down the line when I'm in need, they're going to do this. No, it's, this brings honor to God's name. This brings honor to Christ. So from these criteria, we see that the unregenerate cannot do what, what we would call a truly good work. They, they may do good things and benefit society, but it's not truly good in the sense of it ple being pleasing to God. And they can't do it apart from, or if God, or sorry. Uh, so then the question then arises, if God isn't pleased with any, so if this was an unregenerate person saying, if God isn't pleased with anything I do that's good apart from Christ, why should I even try and do any good at all? What's the point if it's, if it's basically me bringing sin to God, if it is those filthy rags bringing to God, why should I do anything at all? 
Well, the last sentence of this chapter speaks on this. And it says, they cannot qualify anyone to receive grace from God, and yet their neglect is even more sinful and displeasing to God. The confession tells us that it is still better for someone to do these good works than to not do them at all. So think of it this way. It's like being charged with assault versus being charged with aggravated assault. It's the same, same crime, but there's different intent going on here. What the confession states here is that there's sin and then there's aggravated sin. And that would be neglecting to do these things. So it is better, and this is something that I, I want to touch on as well quickly. Yeah. So, so it, it is better for an unregenerate, unbelieving person to be kind to people than not to be. For even though being kind to someone cannot save him or please God, it is not, displeasing to, not as displeasing to God as neglecting to be kind. Children, for example, should still be brought, up, brought to church and taught to pray, even though they may not yet be believers. And, pardon me, may lack a right attitude and a converted heart, because it is more sinful to neglect going to church and praying altogether. However, at the same time, we must teach our children not to be content to just go through the motions. Instead, we must exhort them to pray, not unbelievingly, believingly, believing the gospel and trust in Jesus to save them. That was a really important thing that, I, that hit home for me. So my children, I, I'm, I don't think any of them are regenerated right now, but I still pray with them every night. I'm not neglecting that prayer with them. I'm not neglecting to teach them God's word. I'm not neglecting to tell them to live lives that honor God. If I was to say, well, you're unregenerate, so yeah, best of luck until you get there. No, it's, it's actually more beneficial for them in this light. So if you're even, so I wanted to say this because we're, we're just, we have so many kids in this church, but think of that with your children, that it's not wrong to teach them to pray and to sing and to read the word of God and to do these things if, even if they're not regenerate. It's actually, it's better than saying, well, they're not regenerate, so I can't really. No, it's actually, that's, it's neglect. It's actually more sinful in the, in the sight of God. So that's what I would say is ultimately when it comes to good works, there's, there's little pathway you can look at. You can look at the unregenerate people that still do good things and you can say, yeah, they benefit society. I remember one time we talked about this at Cape and Ray and we said, what if we chose one sin? Thou shalt not steal. And say there was a big conference and the entire world said, okay, we're not going to sin. We're not going to steal. We'll choose that one and no one's going to steal. That would change society completely. Just think of not just like stealing a wallet or stealing this, you wouldn't need a lock on your car. You wouldn't need keys for your car or your house. You wouldn't have to worry about going to work and uh, a, a fellow worker stealing time from their employees. You wouldn't have to worry about your employer stealing money off your paycheck. You wouldn't have to worry about the government stealing from you. It would change society drastically. So we do believe in that, that it, we see the benefits of this that God has commanded. So I would say... When it comes to the unregenerate, especially when I say, when I think of my children, it is so important to remember, it is not actually, it's actually not a proper line of thinking to say, well, they're not regenerate, so maybe I shouldn't pray with them, maybe I sh we shouldn't sing worship songs, maybe we shouldn't read the Bible together, maybe we shouldn't take them to church because of the, no, it's our duty. 
and it's actually, like I say, it's, it's still not 100% pleasing to God, but it's actually worse to neglect those. So that's the chapter on good works. And like I said, my hope is from so many people in our church that come from a legalistic background or they hear works and you kind of tense up and you're like, I don't, I, I, I come from a legalistic background telling me to do X, Y, and Z and I didn't like it. My hope is that you leave with a healthy understanding of good works. That you understand what you're doing. That you're not earning merit, you're not earning favor, you're not adding points to your salvation. You're simply, as it said in Philippians, you're working out what Christ has done in you. So that's what I would leave, I hope that's what I leave with you. And don't, don't feel burdened by good works. They, they are pleasing to God and they honor him. Any questions or comments, concerns, riots, protests, anything? No? Perfect. Never heard of aggravated sin. No, I, I, it, was, uh, it was, once again, it was Brian Bergman in his Sunday school lesson. He kind of, the, that's the way he explained that the neglect of doing these good things, that it's, it's actually worse to do them. And wouldn't that be a form of merit? Merit? I wouldn't say so. Because you're lessening your sin by doing good things. Well, it's, it's still sin, but to, to do it is to be worse off, though. But that's, to some degree, though, that's a merit. Because that's lessening. So if you start taking something away by what you're doing, mm -hmm. you're lessening your sin. I would say merit in the sense of profitable, maybe? Well, it's profit to you because it's not as bad. Mm. I, mm. So again, I, I would explain it in the idea that when people who have no faith do mm -hmm. good things, it is a gift of God in that fact. It's mm -hmm. a common grace. Yes. It has absolutely nothing to do with them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because they cannot please God without faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did, I did read... So when you look at the concept of aggravated sin versus just sin, well, by them not doing something, you're saying that it's worse off than mm -hmm. Well, 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 there is. Well, the, the Bible does talk about different levels of sin. Yes, but not by the fact that it, them doing something good lessens their sin. It, I, I would is say. There, is it not more towards the intention? Because when a believer does a good work, their intention is not mm -hmm. to eradicate their sin. When you commit aggravated assault, your intention. Yeah, it's not. Okay. It might, maybe aggravated assault might be, a, might be a, um, improper term, but I would say that the Bible does speak on different severity levels of sin, that there is different levels. So let's put it that way, that it is, there is less sin, but I don't think that would say to, to meritorious because there is, it's in the sense of, like, there is still punishment to it. Like, for instance, like, you would look at a false teacher, I would say, and they themselves, like, like you have people that are teaching the word that are under harsher judgment. So, so, so maybe aggravated is like, yeah, that, I, I'd have to mull that over. Yeah, like that's a good point that maybe that's not the best terminology. Um, but I did read somewhere somebody talking about good works, not being of grace, but of being the good working of God in the Old Testament, essentially, that it was by them. It, it wasn't grace. It was more of a... Because, because grace is unmerited favor. Yeah, so... Yeah. Yes, Levi. Yeah, I was going to mention since we do not see into a person's heart, mm -hmm. um, we don't know the motivations. Mm -hmm. So therefore, when we see, and I'm, I'm talking about a person that's not regenerated, mm -hmm. 
There are times when we do not know whether the person is deceived, and Satan is just telling him, go do it, it's a good work, mm -hmm. God, or whether actually God is drawing a person, <coughs> sometime after he saves the person. Mm -hmm. Yet I realize the works are still not from a regenerated heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and in all truth, like I said, if you look at even just society, the benefits of following the, 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 like God's laws, like in the Ten Commandments, like I said, if we just all agreed, thou shalt not steal, that would change society for like completely. Like everything would change just from one of God's commandments. It's still not loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but we'll see benefits from that. We will see these things. Um, yeah, I'd have to... Blake did bring up a good point. I'd have to maybe mull that over. I think of meritorious in the sense of it... Yeah, like because there, there is different degrees of sin that it... Like, yeah, Charles, if you can save me, go ahead. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> really God can save yeah, me. yeah. All right, I'm trying to reword a couple things here because I, I, exact, I know exactly what you're saying. The Bible's very clear mm -hmm. that, that there are levels of... There seems to be levels of punishment Mm -hmm. Right? It's going to be worse off for the Jews of the day than it is for Sodom before. Yes. Jesus says to Pilate, you know, the one who did this is the greatest sin. Mm -hmm. So as soon as the Bible kind of tips its hand that there seems to be something within the justice of God that that, that if God is perfectly just, then there are those who have done, and I'm speaking generally, mm -hmm. There are those who have committed much more heinous sin, ongoing long sin, yes. than others. There seems to be some sort of value that is recognized in God's justice that will give some a greater degree of punishment mm -hmm. in eternity than others. And so, in the sense of a general justice from God, there seems to be a... Um, an equal punishment that is just for those sins. Mm -hmm. So so then there is a kind of merit in a general way that mm -hmm. is produced by God's common grace mm -hmm. on on fallen humanity that that allows them to receive different degrees of, of judgment. Mm -hmm. And whether you want to speak of that in terms of merit or not, I, I often think merit sounds more like a word we associate with salvific language. Mm -hmm. right? And so there's nothing in those degrees of sin that can help anyone actually be saved. Yeah. But it does seem to be the case that there is some sort of there is some sort of uh, value on people's on people's works in yeah. a civic sense. Yes. That God does recognize in his judgment. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that yeah. <laughs> so that's so that's everyone's homework is to look that over and because, because the language of scripture recognizes degrees of punishment. Yeah, and absolutely. So, and if God is perfectly just, mm -hmm. he's going to punish according to Yeah. Things. Because and I think with meritorious it like I said I think the keyword would be profitable. Because even if they're doing good works, yep, sorry, I will close this up. Uh, if we're if we think of good works in the sense of profiting and earning salvation, 
yeah, it doesn't give us that less punishment, but it really doesn't move us forward past a certain point. So anyway, Charles, why don't you close us down in prayer and figure this, we'll figure this out. <laughs> God, thank you for the Sunday School and for the opportunity to consider um, what your word teaches us about good works. Thank you, Father, that we do not have to do things to merit our own salvation. Thank you for mm-hmm. everything that we have um, that is honoring to you found in Christ. And so Jesus, we thank you for your act of obedience, uh, your imputation, for all of the good that you have done to our behalf. We praise you for that. We just ask that you would fill us with the Spirit now as we go into it. Amen. Amen.